you said nostalgic. I think of it as like a boring business. Like the reason they got into it because it's boring and no one's going to look into it and make it something financially sexy. Whoa, whoa, financially whoa, sexy. whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> it's financially sexy uh, like an oxymoron. <laughs> I mean, it's too early in the morning to be thrown around those terms regardless. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Hello, my friend. What's up, Doogles? This year is flying, dude. It is. Today is a day I'm so excited to drive into content that I'm worried you're going to give me a hard time for not saying a proper hello. Dare I be the one to hold you back? Well, first of all, we're going to get to this in a little bit, but did you know everyone's going to jail? That's what the professionals <laughs> in the podcasting business call as a tease. But more importantly, did you ever watch Breaking Bad? I did, yes. You know that car wash? Yes. Isn't that, doesn't that car wash hold like a special place in your heart? Doesn't it have a, a special mystique or something? Like it just, it's old school, but it kind of, it's kind of hip. Well, a few things do from that. Because every time that my wife and I drive past a, like a home that's being fumigated, like we know what's really going on in there. Yeah, we know yeah. what's really going on in there. But yes, but yes, I get you. I get you with the car wash. All right. So get this: that car wash, along with hundreds of other car washes, have been purchased recently. First, the private equity firms came for our single-family homes, and institutional investors started buying up all that stuff. Now they're buying. Every car wash under the sun. It's a really interesting business model. I want to talk you through it at a high level. I want to get your thoughts. So these private equity firms are using low financing from a Chicago-based firm called Monroe Capital. At least uh, the breakdown in the Wall Street Journal uh, talks about that firm. Typically paying around 18 times EBITDA to buy car washes. And then they're doing the old private equity thing where they roll up a bunch of car washes and... They create a dominant player in the space. They outsource the back office stuff for efficiencies. And then they go and start to buy up other players in the area. So they become a dominant car wash ownership group in the area. Because of that, they can charge more. They have pricing power. And as I mentioned before, because they outsource the back office, they reduce their things. According to this article... Margins can be as much as 50%. And when you reach certain economies of scale, this all makes sense if you know economics, the multiple you can charge uh, for a future sale of this conglomerate of, say, 400 car washes rather than five goes up. And so some of these uh, private equity firms have even gone public with a group of 400 car washes. Now, the secret sauce, in addition to all those things I just mentioned, is the monthly service charge. Do you know why the monthly service charge is such a big deal here? You mean the subscription? Yeah. Because it always is. <laughs> because it always is. It is. That's right. But car washes had typically, historically, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, had really unpredictable cash flows, right? Because you have a month of bad weather, no one gets their car wash, right? Well, as part of the private equity play here, you really push these monthly subscriptions. And in doing so, you get more predictable cash flows. If you get between 5 and 10% of your customers to sign up for a monthly su- 
uh, subscription. Uh, that cash flow is predictable. That can be as much as 60% of your average revenue. And all of a sudden, you got a business here. Isn't this fascinating? I think the roll-up of small businesses is generally a really fascinating topic. Like, And what you talked about, economies of scale and thinking about how do you take businesses that on, on their own typically are not able to even have time to think about how to save on certain costs, right? And how to get bulk supplies. Like you don't have time to figure all that stuff out. I think that that's yeah. generally fascinating. I also, going back to your Breaking Bad piece, I think that taking a mention, it's like this, you said nostalgic. I think of it as like a boring business. Like the reason they got into it is because it's boring and no one's going to look into it mm-hmm. and make it something financially sexy. Whoa, it's whoa, financially whoa, sexy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> it's financially sexy, uh, like an oxymoron. Did I? I mean, it's too early in the morning to be thrown around those terms, regardless. <laughs> but yeah, to take to take something that on its own is boring, and then make it like financially lucrative. There I am. There I am. Yeah, there right? we go. It's like I think it's. I do think it's pretty fascinating. It's so funny you use that term, uh, whether it's lucrative or sexy. Uh, when I mean me as like an 11 year old, it was my dream to buy a car wash. So that just tells you a little something about my psyche. I was always into these really boring businesses that print cash. Um, laundromat used to be on the list for me too, but it seems like, you know, all rentals now have their own washer dryer. So I think that's a dying business. You're all about cash flows. That's right. However, yeah. however you get them, whether it's suing a railway for 22 years or buying a laundromat. Well, hopefully it's the most boring way possible. But the other thing, as I read this article, as we talked about sky high rents in mobile home parks, that makes me a little sad here is there's a mom and pop that worked 40 years to run their car wash in a way to generate some cash to put their kids through college that is battling an unfair game now when the crosstown conglomerate comes in and starts building brand new facilities with economies of scale, buying their chemicals in bulk. Like that always makes me a little sad. Now at the end of the day, it's business and, and it is what it is. But if you own 400 car washes, you have a significant advantage over the person that owns one. I do think you have a, a solid point there and we don't have to take the conversation this direction, but when, when something you said, it's, it's, it's business, right? I get that. When something is, only business is when you start to at least least in my mind is when you start to get to like the fine line between capitalism being productive for what it is and thinking about society it's really i don't know how to draw that line right i don't don't know if it's it's even possible to really figure out how to draw that line but there is something to it because the american quote-unquote american dream the entrepreneur, you start your business, you go through it, you work hard, right, to be able to to make for your family. And then you have like the large conglomerate or private equity that can come in and just do it. I think economy of scales is real. And I also think roll ups of small businesses is fascinating at the same time. Yeah. To your point. Yeah. I don't know. Well, haven't, haven't people been debating that for hundreds of thousands of years and will continue to? And if you talk about the political <laughs> divide in the country, no, come on. <laughs> Oh, wait, maybe not hundreds of thousands of years. Let's just go thousands of years, all right? (laughs) Well, the dinosaurs. The the dinosaurs love to talk about roll-ups of small business doodles. (laughs) Point is, I I actually had a point here, believe it or not, before I said something that stupid. (laughs) I think one way to potentially draw that line in the sand is to support employee ownership. I mean, we talk about 
ownership of businesses through equities on the show all the time. But if you take the approach that it's absolutely all about the bottom line, I don't know that that's good for the society. But if you share some profits in a smart way, hopefully you you spread that wealth a little. Yeah, I think I think that's astute. The fact that you are taking advantage of things like economies of scale to grow the business is one thing, but what you do with the money is another. Well stated. Regardless, from a business perspective, you look at that purely, this is interesting stuff. Yeah, fascinating stuff. I love small businesses. That's my day in, day out. It's great stuff. All right, what's in your fishbowl? All right, fishbowl in it. Let's talk about Gen Z. Do we have to? No. All right, what's in your fishbowl? (laughs) All right. right, So Gen Z is reading this, this piece in Yahoo Finance that was talking about Gen Z and their, I don't know, youthful refusal to save right now. And before we get into this, look, when you're young, you can do what you want. We, we on here say start saving early, right? Compounding is a big thing. We believe in that. But when you're young, do what you want. I'm going to say that. And then I'm probably going to say the opposite in a minute. So, so this piece was saying that According to a retirement planning report from Fidelity, half of Gen Zers don't see a point in saving money, dot, 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 until things return to normal. Th- this That was the part <laughs> that, that kind of got me. It's the rationale here, because as I mentioned a minute ago, it's like if, if you're like, I'm young, you know, I got my whole life ahead of me, then you can go be stupid, do your thing, waste time, and then you realize that you're being stupid later. But here, the rationale for it was, I'll give you a couple quotes. Ahmed said the COVID-19 pandemic showed plenty of young people how to quickly how quickly their normal can be stolen away. So what Gen Zers are saying here is I'm going to wait until a time where when I have my money and I invest my money that it is just normal, like it'll just stay and always go up and to the right. And during this time when any given day my normal can be taken away, what's the point? I think I'm going to surprise you on this one. You know, 20 years ago, I would have been absolutely like, Hey, you're, you're taking 15% of your first paycheck, whether you're 11 years old or 16 years old, you're putting that in your 401k type investment vehicle and you're sitting on it. Right. I've seen not in the same way that Gen Z is being quoted in this article, but I've seen too many people lose their health too early. And I think there's this fine balance between, you know, you, you don't know. Someone from everyone's high school, unfortunately, ends up dying at 18, you know, and uh, way too many of our friends get cancer in their 30s or 40s. You know, there's some fine balance here where you have to be smart about planning for the future. And I know you're I know you're I know you're trying to strike that balance. I I know this isn't a like easy answer for you, but. Listen, COVID was terrible and and it did take away your sense of normal. If this 23-year-old wants to live two more years of the high life, I think I can roll with that actually. I get that. And that's the, you know, you're young, go be stupid. I you yeah. know, whatever whatever yeah. you want to do. When I say stupid, I mean just do what you want to do. It's not like just the whole youthful. is it Mark Twain, youth is wasted on the young? I mean, is that the quote here? Like they, they're gonna be stupid, right? I don't know about any of that. But what what I'm what, what was surprising to me here wasn't that it was just all that right like there were parts of this this article that were like i mentioned i've got this income i can do whatever i want or there was a part of it that said that they want to spend this time investing in themselves and their professional development rather than investing elsewhere and i think stuff like that i go you know it's a balance figure that out but what surprised me 
was this focus on normalcy and the fact that if I put my money there, someone can just take it away and I'm going to wait until it gets back to normal. That was the, that was the part that I kind of went, is there, there might be a misunderstanding that all of it is normal. Like it's normal that there are ups and downs. It's normal that the stock market's volatile. Now it might not be not might not be normal that there's a global pandemic, right? Like that might not be normal. Yeah, but but I was I'm wondering what the when they're saying normal every time normal's in the article, it's in quotes, and I wanted a definition. Like that seemed like the most important part of this to me was what are you waiting for? If you're waiting to go back to normal, it, it made me think about the what we've discussed a number of times here around people sitting on the sidelines with cash. Right. And waiting to the for the right moment to get back in. And this was more about even less about the stock market in particular, but more about like life and broad savings. I mean, like, what is it that you're waiting for? Well, let's figure out how many uh, what percentage of our listeners are Gen Z, because I'm going to make a really bad joke for for Gen Z. I think normal is sitting in your parents basement and scrolling through Instagram, isn't it? I don't know any of the words you just said. <laughs> No way, it's actually TikTok. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's I think that's fair. I all I know is I can relate. But I I fully agree with your point and I think if there's guidance here, it's to try and find middle ground, right? Maybe you feel like normal is taken away from you and you're not ready to save 10 to 15% of your salary, but by golly, at least save 5% of your salary and then take 5% to go have fun and be you know live your your 20s is there is there middle ground to be had i guess is all i'd say probably and maybe the fact that that uh neither one of us obviously understands gen z where i don't even know you mentioned instagram i don't even know what that is and you were trying to mention tiktok and you mentioned instagram maybe this isn't the topic <laughs> for for us to be to be discussing about that was just to me that was really interesting trying to figure out like what the heck is the definition of normal and when does that mean that you start? And I couldn't quite figure that out. Well, I just, this specific topic put Gen Z with millennials and any other generation. Like this article is written every two years about the youth. And it the tag is always, they don't save like th their elders saved. I just think this is some of growing up. You know, if the prefrontal cortex for your average male isn't even developed by 25, do we expect them to act like a 45 year old with two and 2.2 kids? I don't think we do. It's a it's a good point. It's a good point. I'm going to so I'm going to fishbowl shift a little bit here. Okay. But using because there's another Gen Zer that fascinated me this week. But I'm going to get there in a backward way by talking about one of my old phase stocks. Bed Bath & Beyond. Bed Bath & Beyond has been a stock that has been interesting to me for about 20 years. Um, yeah. It's also been about 20 years since the store Bed Bath & Beyond was interesting to anyone else. But putting that aside, something that happened recently is Ryan Cohen, who is not the Gen Zer I'm talking about, Ryan Cohen of GameStop fame of uh, that we talked about last year, he started getting into Bed Bath & Beyond, I think maybe a little earlier this year. Well, and, and so correct the, me if I'm wrong, of Chewy.com fame as well, right? Initially, yeah. So he made yeah. his money from Chewy. Um, he, he left Chewy and then 
back in, we told this this whole tale. If you want to go back and listen to, I think it was episode five ish. Um, yep. We were talking about GameStop, and part of that was Ryan Cohen and how he started accumulating and what that did for GameStop stock. He started buying up Bed Bath and Beyond a little earlier this year, I think. I can't remember exactly when. And then, um, and so uh, Bed Bath Beyond got a little bit of a of a boost, but then it's been it's been falling with uh, the rest of the stock market this year. Anyway, what happened was Ryan Cohen filed to sell all of his holdings. So he had about 12% of the company, a little over 9 million shares, said, I'm selling it all. And Bed Bath & Beyond, which over the month between like July to August had gone up four and a half X, then proceeded to fall 63% roughly in about two days. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that happened. And so I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. And what, what happened in my household, because my household knows how I feel about Bed Bath Beyond. It just always like, I don't know why. It's just a stock that always has a special place in my heart. I get this text from my wife that says, don't you dare even think about buying that stock. Didn't even, didn't even mention what stock it was. But we all knew what we were talking about. But then where it took a turn, and this is where the Gen Zer comes into play, is there's this kid, this college kid that made a ton of money off of this stock. And so so I I see I see a couple headlines, right? That said this kid Jake Freeman, college student at USC makes 110 million dollars in the Bed Bath Beyond run up. And so I saw the headline a couple times and I was like, all right, it just in my head I imagined what had occurred. I was like he bought a half an option accidentally, the thing goes up 4.5x. Yeah. Yep. Then I finally click into one of these things and it was not what I was thinking. I was thinking it was some like Reddit trader that did whatever. And it turns out this guy had bought 5 million shares of Bed Bath & Beyond at like $5 a piece. And I went, who is this kid? Like, I, cause I just pictured someone sitting in his dorm in his underpanties with Mountain Dew, you know, code accidentally. <laughs> yes. Yes. It was definitely code red buying options. And it turns out he's like, uh, like he has a, a financial management firm. Well, there's a little more to this story. I, I mean, this guy it. was born on third and a half base. It seems he got an internship at some hedge fund and then managed to uh, get 25 million from friends and family. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, it's it just surprised me so much because of what I'd had in my head. I thought this was like. Uh, who was our friend that made all the money in GameStop, right? That um... Oh, the guy that looks like the CEO of Robinhood, but I don't know his name. Yeah, the exactly. Roaring Kitty. Yeah, Roaring Kitty. Remember Kitty. he went in front of Congress with a little cat hanging in front of a ledge behind him yeah. on his whiteboard? That was really something. Yeah. <laughs> that wonderful. article, I don't know why. Maybe I'm just in a bad mood this morning, but like we need to stop writing those articles. The, the article has like this clickbaity headline and it, makes it sound to your impression like oh this retail trader made a really smart trade and he was breaking down fundamentals of robin hood or of bed bath and beyond excuse me and no what happened is he happened to have 25 million dollars and then he got lucky effectively the reason bed bath and beyond went up so drastically is because of the ryan uh cohen involvement in the first three months of the year there's a lot of luck involved in that game to write an article that acts like this is how you make a hundred million dollars. No, that's not it guys. That's not how you do it. Yeah, exactly. I pictured it had to be, he went from $10 to 110 million. Like that, like somehow this happened and no, 
He did not. He went from 25. Like, I don't even care. Right. Like at that point, what what he did happens all the time. And it usually ends up going away just as quickly. Hopefully that has not happened to you, Jake Freeman. But yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I just I had to bring it up because I I just think that to your point, the headline was telling a story that didn't really exist. Like it was and it, it was it was disappointing, but then also surprising. And I contrast that to the Gen Zers that are going off and gall- for some reason they're gallivanting in fields, which is probably not what they're doing. But I picture them gallivanting in fields and not putting money into their savings account. Then you got this guy who's given all the money in the world and buys a retailer that doesn't. The only thing that Bed Bath Beyond doesn't do is retail like they don't sell goods anymore um, and happen to turn this 25 million into 110 million. So alas. Well, so I want to provide a little more background here. Uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, also in our first 10 episodes, we broke down the meme stock AMC sort of stuff. Bed Bath & Beyond recently has become a meme stock along with AMC. And what happened in the first, well, there's a couple different spikes here, but what happened in early 2020 is the same as AMC. Wall Street Bets and others got enthused about Bed Bath & Beyond and drove the stock price from about 5 bucks a share all the way to 35 bucks a share at its peak. And then it finally cooled off from that and then got steam recently. AMC is back with some meme stock trading as well. So you you have that as the underlying structure and then you get the Ryan Cohen phenomenon and you see the thing take off. But I did the same as you because I love stocks that drop 60%. I, I looked at the fundamentals of this. You know, the Bed Bath & Beyond and Kohl's are like of the same era and they're both dying retailers. Kohl's actually makes money. This thing is a dumpster fire, Dougals. You just look at some basic fundamentals. All they do is throw money in the trash can. Like, I don't understand this the college student we're talking about. I don't understand what his investment hypothesis was at five bucks a share because they're basically just throwing money in the dumpster. Like, how is this an investable stock at this point in the game? I don't get it. There was no like fundamental investment hypothesis. And then there's some other stock. I don't have the detail in front of me. There's some other stock that he was also, he also had a significant position in. And after this article came out, that stock then started going to the moon because everyone went, well, obviously he knows how to pick stocks that are going to go up oh, 4X please. in a month. Oh, please. <laughs> so just... if you go back to Ryan Cohen, he built his position. I'm trying to find the exact number. Four months later, he sold his entire position. Um, I think he had 150 million worth of the stock. I, if I remember right, his gain was like somewhere in the 70 million range. And guess who gets left holding the bag here? It's not the powerful institutional former founder of Chewy.com, Ryan Cohen. It's all the people that tried to ride his coattails into something they might have thought was an investment when it was clearly a speculation. I don't know if we're supposed to feel bad for those people, but it's unfortunate because this happens way too often. It is very, it is very unfortunate. It happens. I mean, we've been talking about it for two years. Yeah. It's during, during these periods, it probably happens more frequently because of so how many retail investors are in the market right now, but yeah, yeah, it happens so often. It's just like a, I don't know, it's just nonsense fueled by more nonsense, but I, uh, I, I just enjoy 
how much like there are people people know how much I love Bath Bed Bath Beyond. <laughs> and I don't I don't know why, but it really captured me like 20 years ago. Like when the run up happened um earlier uh last year, like during the meme stock craze, I got people that were texting me were like, Are you still in? <laughs> right. Cause and like no, I haven't been in Bath Bath Beyond for so long, but it's just like, I just used to talk about the stock so much. Yeah, I haven't been in the store or in the stock for 20 years. That's... Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, what's next for you in the fishbowl? Well, I got a PSA. You know Dan Price, who uh, gave his... Oh, I get icky, icky, ickies. Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't until recently. So... New York Times had a breakdown this week. We're not going to go into the details because it is uh, it's not a fun subject. Uh, sexual harassment and and worse. Here's what I didn't know about Dan Price and why I just want to do a quick PSA. Obviously, everyone's innocent to till proven guilty. But next time you see a quote from him come across your Twitter or your LinkedIn or whatever, just give it pause before you hit like because there's a lot going on with Dan Price. He became, you know, this famous CEO when he decided to raise the price or the the minimum pay of his company to $70,000. And he went on this diatribe about um, living wage and took a pay cut, talked about all these other things. Turns out a couple things. One, his actions behind the scenes have been horrible. Two, he has a ghostwriter who writes all his tweets and LinkedIn posts, which tells you kind of all you need to know. So, yeah, I don't want to do a breakdown unless it's interesting to you. I'd recommend the piece in the New York Times, but it seems that his reputation is not well earned and, and incredibly deceiving, I guess I'd say. But the, the length right. of time in which someone can have that halo effect is, is pretty interesting. Like years, years. Maybe you know, when I say I'm interesting, just... I should probably say disturbing. Yeah. I'm just so naive. Like, I, I think people write their own LinkedIn posts. I just do. And that's <laughs> idiotic of me. But no. Yeah. And the fact that I'm sure this happens in a bunch of places, but that you can use social media to control the narrative and suppress like real news about you is an interesting one. You got anything more fun for me? Oh, fun. Well, here's a little bit of fun. Talking about Michael Burry is always, always a little bit of fun. So let's hit on that for a minute or yeah. two. Uh, so Michael Burry, most folks that know who he is know him because he was one of the main characters in the movie and the book, The Big Short. Uh, Michael Burry took a substantial short position in the housing market back in the late 2000s, made buku wuku when the housing market went down. He's a genius, right? That was the That's kind of the, the headline there. Over the past three years, maybe, Michael Burry's also been in the news a good amount, in the investing news a good amount, for his hot takes around everything going to crap. He was part of the the GameStop um, conversation that we had early last year, too. Every now and again, he pops up his head, and there's something else that you can only really respond to with, that's so Burry, which, for the record, should probably be a sitcom. But what he's done now is we had the the recent 13Fs have come out. And so an investing company that has over, what is it, like $100 million or something like that, there's some minimum threshold, uh, you have to release 13Fs. And they come out about 40 days after the, 45 days after the quarter ends. So his comes out. And what it shows 
is that he sold everything. He had about, I think it was 12 or 13 holdings that Michael Burry had, sold it all, and then bought one stock, which is a prison company. Now, if yep. you read, if you read the what is it, the bio, I don't know, the summary, whatever it is, about what this stock is, it'll use all kinds of fancy words. It says like, we are a specialized, diversified organization that looks at real estate for dot, 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 and goes on for 25 sentences. It's a prison cotton is what it yep. should say. Yep. P-R-Z-N-C-U-T-T-N is what it should say. Prison cotton is what, is what it should say. And so what do you think, this is all that came to my mind after I went, that's so Burry, said, what do you think the hypothesis for the world is of an individual that sells all of their holdings and then buys into a private prison company? I mean, maybe he's committed some crimes. <laughs> so he can come out and be like, not only am I an investor, I'm also a client. No, get this. So do you know this? This is super fascinating. If you ask someone what percentage of people they think steal from the office, the higher percentage they give you, the more likely it is that they have actually stolen from the office because they normalize that behavior. So so you extrapolate that to Michael Burry buying <laughs> prison stock? No, I'm completely making stuff <laughs> up here. I, I don't know what it means. It, it's almost like this is a joke. I mean, I, it, it doesn't. There's no way he thinks there's only one investment worthwhile at the moment. And it's uh, prison. Coming. <laughs> if I remember correctly from the 13F, it's not like he put 100% of his wealth. I think he just has a lot of cash on the sidelines. Yeah, so it seems almost like a joke. I mean, I think it a ton of cash on the sidelines. And you also don't know. So the 13F comes 45 days right after a period's over. And you don't know exactly like what the... Um, the investing trail, I'd say, is it could be that he sold everything. And at I'm making this up because this probably wouldn't work. But like 11.59 at the end of the quarter, bought that one yeah. stock. And then 12.01 start, started buying a whole bunch of other <laughs> stocks that aren't going to I mean, show if up. it was a joke, that's what I'd do. I, I would totally, <laughs> I'd sell everything. And then I, the day that I have to file, I'd buy the one stock. And then I'd buy my 13 other holdings the very next day. <laughs> So many of these guys, even if they're brilliant investors, they just trade way too much, in my opinion. They just, he was short Apple earlier in the year. And I don't think that position actually hit for him. He, he just trades more than I would like. And you also, the other thing that you don't know is you never know. You, what's something you brought up to me before? You never know what hedges someone has outside of all of this. You never know outside of what you see. You never know how much this money even matters to them. Oh, well, right. a lot of, for a lot of these people, it doesn't matter at all. Yeah. You just never know what someone uh, like some what someone's actually buying, why they're buying it, what their full view is, what else they have hedged on the side, how much this matters to them, what percent of their total portfolio. There's like so much you don't know. And so I think that those are those are always good points to keep in mind. Yeah, if we talk 13F specifically, I just want to drop a, a few reminders for folks. So one, if you listen to the William Green, Bill Miller interview. He will tell you on William's podcast, he will tell you that he has two main positions right now. He's about 50% Bitcoin, 50% Amazon. You could take the impression of like, Bill Miller's a brilliant investor. He beat the stock market for 18 straight years. No one's ever done that. I'm going to buy whatever he's going to buy. In that same interview, he when William asked 
how much the average investor should consider Bitcoin, even though Bill Miller is a huge Bitcoin guy. He says 2% of your wealth. He also says, I have billions of dollars and my investments don't matter at all to me in terms of Amazon and Bitcoin. So you have to dig a little deeper, you know, like those aren't good. Those aren't the investments you should have. They make perfect sense for Bill Miller because he's owned both of them for years and years and years. His cost basis is basically zero. And he's a billionaire who could have that wealth disappear before him. And it wouldn't change his lifestyle in any way, shape or form. Like, yep. It, it's not. Also, the other thing, Med Faber has a book called, uh, I think it's called Bet the House. It's about 13F investing. And the fascinating insight from that is when you look at people like Klarman, Buffett, whoever else, if you're trying to trend follow on their stock picks, the stock that's most likely to underperform in that group is their biggest holding. And, and often for that, the reason for that is their biggest holding already got the huge bump. So they invested at a lower price. It already did its 50% bump or whatever. It's still in their portfolio, but they're probably not actively buying shares. So if you buy on their coattails, the largest holding often isn't going to be the source of outperformance in the future. I just find that interesting. Spit and wisdom. All right. Quiz for you. Which state tips better than any other state in the U.S.? If you give me any of the top five, I'll be fascinated. This is percent tip? Percent tip. Washington. The state? Yeah, that's what you asked me, right? Okay. Top five states. Indiana, 21% average tip. This is from The Hustle. Followed by West Virginia, Ohio, Delaware, and Kentucky. That's like, those states are fairly close to each other. I, I'm going to call it the northern midwest <laughs> northeastern you just, you just midwest. named like eight directions the northern mid-southwest east <laughs> okay i don't know that i believe that those states are just like better people than the rest of the u.s i think they buy goods that are more likely to enable strong tipping am i on to anything something here like i have no facts price? this is i don't know what it is why would Indiana and West Virginia tip better than, I mean, do you want to know the bottom five? California, Washington, Florida, New York, and Hawaii. I thought you wanted me to name one of the bottom five. Okay. Oh, sure you did. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would think there must be something that's price related in that. There must be. Where like if, uh, if your average, I'm making this up, of course, if your average price is $4 and you leave $5, that's different than a place where your average might be $9 and people leave $10, whereas you're leaving a dollar in both occasions, but the price difference makes the percent higher. I can't think of any other reason why that would be the case. It's, it's very strange. Kentucky may be because you got all hopped up on the burbs and then you uh, you just leave in 20% here and 20% there. I don't know. Uh, that could be. I mean, West Virginia... West Virginia's economy is one of the most depressed in the entire U.S. in terms of median incomes and those sort of things. So you would think prices are depressed, maybe. And therefore, yeah, if you go by that dollar tip courtesy on lower goods, it would bring up your total tip percentage. Had me thinking this week. All right. Kick it back to you for your fishbowl. Okay. I got one last thing. We've hit on Klarna. A couple times in the podcast and i read this piece 
um, this blog post about like it's a little bit of like more insider knowledge of what happened during the layoffs that occurred back in May. And I think a lot of this has to it's thematically it's similar to when we were talking about the uh, investing stuff a little bit a, a little bit ago that you never really know what's going on inside. And getting that view, not even about Klarna specifically, but just getting that view into what's at, what's really occurring within an organization is enlightening at times. So I'll give a couple tidbits and then we'll put it out so folks can can read more. As a reminder, the reason we brought up Klarna was because it had a massive valuation run up and then a massive valuation decline. Private company. So this was all valuations based on uh, the investors that were coming in and Klarna's in the buy now, pay later space, FYI. So and to give a couple uh, stats on that. So back in uh, 2000. 21. So last year in March, Klarna raised a billion dollars at a $31 billion valuation. And then three months later in June, it raised another roughly $600 million at a $45 billion valuation. And then this year raised at something like a $6 billion valuation, something along those lines. Right. So during all this time, though, here are a few things that happened. Let's start with the layoff. So this year, May 23rd, it was a Monday to be exact. Klarna employees see this, this calendar invite pop up, mandatory calendar invite, all 7,500 employees that came up. Usually not a good thing. It's either like a really, really good thing or it's a bad thing. It's usually right? not a good thing. And it's usually not a really, really good thing. Uh, and then the calendar invite disappears. Like everyone sees it come on and then it goes away. And folks are like, what is going on here? Then a little bit later, it reappears. And so everyone comes on to the meeting. And the meeting is, I can't even really call this a meeting. It was a pre-recorded message from the CEO. No, no. Yes. A pre-recorded message of a video of the CEO saying that there would be layoffs. Didn't give any detail or numbers or any of that nature, but said there would be layoffs. Then after the meeting ended, there was an article that was put on their Slack channel. An article was put on their Slack channel. A TechCrunch article <laughs> that said that 10% of Klarna employees would be laid off. So the company didn't even tell the company what that number was. They learned it by reading an article about the company. Yeah. So, so there's that. So I started going further into this and a couple other tidbits that came out. So in 2020, they, in order to conserve cash, they moved from cash uh, raises to RSUs, restricted stock units, just shares of the company, right? Mm-hmm. So they wanted to they wanted to save cash. Okay, sounds good. Um, they also didn't give out any bonuses. In 2021, bonuses then became a mix of cash and RSUs. But it seems like the way that they they did it was that, like they said, so it's going to be a mix of cash and RSUs. If you want your RSUs, you have to tell us now. And so the employees that were like on vacation <laughs> were like, hold on, how do I? <laughs> How do I figure out how to like how to do this? Right. And so it's just like it's a lot of basically internal communication seems to not be their forte, I think. And then also in running the company, while they're doing a lot of this cash spending, they bought another company for 40% cash. They were holding like large cash sucking events in celebration. And so what the what the employees were saying, and companies do like a mix of this stuff all the time. It's just like I just think it's interesting to look at like this many. There's obviously a trend here. And when uh, when the employees were asked if they expected the layoffs, they said no. They were basically confused because of the mixed messaging. 
that was happening here of like we're saving cash but we're not saving cash and a quote in there was the culture and expression within the company for the last couple of years has been all about success and growth well until the down round until their valuation got cut by seven times i i mean that makes sense right that's less about success and growth yeah that's (laughs) (laughs) and we um can we tie this into the conversation from last week about buybacks? Yeah, go for it. Assume that those valuations are correct and you know it's private valuation. So just bear with me for a second. If you go from 30-something million to 45 million to 6 million <laughs> for the listeners, when would be a good time for the company to buy back some shares it would be at six million bucks when would be a good time for the company to issue some shares and you have some of that happening with the rsus you mentioned as an employee if you think the company is actually going to survive and you can pay the mortgage man i'll take the rsus at the six billion dollar valuation rather than the rsus at the 45 billion dollar valuation right i just think hopefully that illustrates the point of what i'm trying to say last week about when you when and how you do your capital allocation i I bet if the economy normalizes in quotes to to make you laugh doogles the valuation is probably somewhere between the 45 billion and the six billion dollars right that's true valuation I, I, i think that's probably right it's quite a range i think that's probably right I don't know. I just think that's interesting to yeah. see that much variation in such a short period of time. All right. I got a few more things in my fishbowl. I'm going to hit them quick. Um, first is a reminder that international outperformance is coming. The way I'm going to do that is I'm going to talk through a graph from JP Morgan. This is one of my favorite things. What? Wait, sen- Senor No Predictions, which is your moniker, Senor No Predictions, just said, as a reminder. Yep. <laughs> Senor that- Senior no predictions is going to talk about mean reversion and not predictions. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So if we start in 1982, international here, which is defined as uh, Europe, Australia, Asia, and the Middle East, had a six-year run where it outperformed U.S. stocks by 340 or 374%. That was followed by a four-year run where the U.S. outperformed by 99% which was followed by a 1.5-year run where international outperformed by 36%. This trend continues. Did you say a one and a half year run? Yeah. <laughs> how, how much time has to pass before something becomes a run? A run? Oh, I'm done with you, Doogles. From the, the Clinton years, the 90s, the U.S. stocks outperformed for six years. Hopefully that's a run in your eyes, Doogles. 220%. Then from 2001 to 2007, international outperformed for seven years. Right now, we are in the middle of US outperformance for almost 15 years, Dougals. If you go back to the early 70s, this is the longest period of time in which US equities have consistently outperformed international equities. My whole point here, not a prediction because predictions are stupid, is at some point this is going to end and what always happens is going to happen, and that's that international stocks will outperform U.S. stocks. There's a lot of factors in here, but I think it's worth pointing out. Can you give me the the years that those international runs started again? Just the start of it. Yeah, them. we'll just talk about the last three. So I want all uh, of it. 
Well, you want to go back to the 70s. So basically 71 to 73 and then 77 to about 80, 83 to 87, um, about 92 to 94, and then basically 2001 to 2008. Interesting. Okay. Like there, there's a, there's a million factors at play. Some of it is valuations of the stock market, right? If you talk about what has happened for the last 15 years, some of that is the U.S. stock market getting significantly more expensive in terms of its valuation. And like the European stock market's kind of doing nothing uh, for a variety of factors, some interest rates, some wars, some uh, you know, complex adaptive systems here. That's yeah. why predictions yep. are dumb. I just know that U.S. outperformance doesn't continue forever. That's my whole point. Yeah, makes sense. That makes perfect sense. All right. I find it fascinating that real estate inventories are up like crazy. Home sales are uh, have declined for six straight months. This is not a surprise, but I wanted to mention it. Now, I know you're not a huge college football fan. I am. There's a quarterback... Uh, for Louisiana State University, who did what everyone in college football is doing. The the most elite players in college football are now making millions of dollars in name, image, and likeness endorsements. So there's a guy named DeColdest. Have you heard about this guy? Nope. He He's also from Louisiana. He signed with the University of Nebraska. He His true name is DeColdest. He's a wide receiver. He has the most amazing... HVAC ad, which is totally a Dougal's thing, where <laughs> they have, you know, these rural Nebraskans being like, our AC doesn't broke cold anymore. And then the guy comes on and is like, you should go with ABC HVAC for the coldest <laughs> air conditioning oh you can imagine. Oh my goodness. So great. So great. I love it. But the NCAA, per usual, has made all sorts of red tape here that doesn't really need to be in place. They've said with name and image and likeness, it can't be formal pay for play. And so this star quarterback at LSU was thought to be maybe the starting quarterback for one of the top teams in the country. Turns out he lost the job and therefore he retired from football. All of these signed contracts he has that actually agree to pay him this year are not tied to him pay, uh, playing football. So he gets all his endorsement deals and he doesn't he doesn't get any publicity wow. for these companies. He has Raisin Canes, Smoothie King, Gamecoin, which is a crypto company, Small Sliders, and some other ones. Uh, a Ford dealership. He's probably driving around a new F-150 right now. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> Does he even have to do the publicity? Uh, I assume he at least has to do that. He but probably like, still has to do it? the publicity. They just don't want him to but, do it, most likely. A lot of these things became boosters paying, um, you know, recruits to sign or, or people to stay at the school. And so a lot of these publicity agreements are like, hey, I'll pay you uh, 50 grand for a tweet. Well, no one actually thought that that tweet had $50,000 worth of value. It was a loophole in the contract to get to pay for play when you're not when that's against the law. So it's just the Wild West. I just find it fascinating because it's like this business that has so many restrictions on it that it's not a true business. Blows my mind. All right. Last thing in my fishbowl here is a recommendation 
an article in the New York Times called The Rise of Worker Productivity Scores. If you read this article, if you're a subscriber to the New York Times, it will actually track you. It will tell you if you scroll at the appropriate rate uh, for reading comprehension, it will tell you how frequently you pay attention to the screen versus get distracted and look at other things. It's using a software similar to what has been enacted uh, post-COVID in a lot of companies that basically do stats on how productive your workers are. In some cases, hourly workers actually only get paid when their computer believes that they're working. Meaning if you you know, pull out a piece of paper and jot down some notes to do some math. The productivity tracking tool on your computer says, well, you're not looking at the screen and therefore you're not actually doing work. And so we're not paying you for that. The reason I bring this up, Douglas, is I just don't follow this thread at all. If you can't trust your employees, they're not worth paying. And if you have such rigid tools put in place to track them, you clearly don't trust them. Uh, Hire robots in, in this case. It doesn't make sense to me. And so this article gave me such an icky feeling that I was like, if I'm in a company like this, I'm quitting <laughs> as soon as possible. Like I'm quitting as soon as I'm aware of the productivity score. I don't know how this does any good for anyone. It's kind of goes back to, you know, Elon Musk is always screaming about how AI is going to ruin humanity. Some of it just brings up independent of use. What is possible today, right? And in the right or wrong hands, what it like, what the what the use ends up being, it's kind of like brings that up to me. Yeah, I have a lot of friends at one of the world's largest companies, so shall remain nameless. And um, when I talked about their management techniques, I've frequently been told that the employees have no clue how much data is collected about their performance. It's not quite this level of creepy. But it's there. And some of these world's largest tech companies were built in a way where this sort of tracking is really, really easy. But that company specifically is still using judgment, a lot of human judgment when it comes to rating performance. Some of these companies in this article seem to basically say, whatever the computer tells me, that's how I reward my employees. That's how I determine promotions. And so here's what's happening. People are buying from Amazon. And I looked, these are really popular things that juggle your mouse. So it looks like you're actually looking at the screen when you're not. Things that type your keyboard for you, just hit a random key every seven seconds. Like, how sad is it that people are going on Amazon and spending 50 bucks to get something like, like the Homer Simpson episode where he gains so much weight that he gets to work from home. And then he has the little thing that hits the yes key. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is where we are now, it seems. What's feasible these days is, is like out of control. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the non-balance between human judgment and machine. I think people are trying to figure it out, though, at the same time. Right. And hopefully we land in a place that is well balanced. I guess to summarize, I felt like this was judging people as if they're computers. It was grading them as if they're a computer. And if you want a computer to do the job, hire a computer to do the job. And you can do that in a way that's cost effective and has crazy efficiency. But if you actually need people to do the job, I think they need to be, I don't know, assessed as humans. And there needs to be an understanding 
Like I talk about that, I often told my employees, hey, go for a walk. That's not going to show up as productive on the computer tracking software, but it is going to allow a breakthrough that actually makes the company more money. I don't I don't know why this popped up in my mind right now, but it did. Have you read about this this trend that's being called quiet quitting? Yeah, I have. Right. So broadly, the trend is people not leaving their jobs, but just doing the amount of work that they can do to live the life they still want to live, but not actually quit. I, I think that's like the simplest way I can think about it. One thing that I saw that I thought was kind of funny around this was someone had a quote. It might have been a tweet. I can't remember. But a quote that I saw was along the lines of, wait, so you're saying that people are refusing to go above and beyond at their job and instead they just want to do the thing that's expected of them and you're calling it quiet quitting, dot, dot, dot. Isn't that just called working? And it was like, I read that and went like, it does seem like that. Like what folks are saying is, you want me to do this thing, I'm just going to do that thing. Like that, that is the job. Like they're just doing the job. Right. When I first started looking into it, I thought it was going to be more of like what you were mentioning around the Homer Simpson, like hitting the (laughs) hitting the same key and acting like you're working. But it seems like people were just doing the job. And it was the lack of going above and beyond and trying to impress everybody or whatever that was like causing this trend. Yeah. So quiet quitting also gets thrown around as something that Gen Z is interested in and, and this rebellion thing. I think the term is wrong, but do you remember a year ago when we talked about the trend in China called lying flat? Yeah. Yep. I mean, China beat us to it by a year. Their their youth was basically saying, hey, listen, I'm not working six days a week for a minimum of nine to 10 hours simply to like, I'm not making work my life. So they started a culture movement called lying flat, which is very similar to quiet quitting. And this all ties to the earlier conversation, right? The Like if Gen Z is waiting for normal to come back and they're seeing the examples from their bosses as people that truly live to work, I'll pull back to say, I don't really aspire to do that. It seems perfectly rational. The other thing I think about here is this might, the company definitely has some blame. This just sounds like people are really disengaged. You're not challenging them enough. You're not rewarding them enough. You're not praising them enough. And in a lot of cases, the stuff I've read about quite quitting is the people don't have interesting, engaging work. If you fix that, I think they're going to not be in the quiet quitting camp. I, I think that that's that's pretty dead on around people. If you're not giving them, whether it's uh, the right challenge or whatever, that might be like inspiring or something they aspire to want to do then they can, they're going to show up and collect the paycheck, right? But they're still doing the thing you asked them to do. But if you yeah. give them that that thing, and, and you don't have to, I think it's an organization for every employee either. Like I don't think that that should be the, the bar that's set, that every employee has to be on all the time and you as a manager have to inspire fully every single employee. I think there it's it's the balance. You have to be like the right percentage of folks, right? And so um, I this, the pressure is probably in the wrong place, I think, in a lot of these spots. Completely agreed. All right. Anything else on your end, Douglas? No, I think it's time to wrap up. All right, guys. Well, uh, we love reviews and listener mail. Please uh, review the podcast when you get a chance. Uh, that helps more people find the show. Listener mail. Easiest way to do that is skippydougals at gmail.com. 
also hit the Substack for all the articles we talk about on a weekly basis. And uh, premium subscribers, if you want to support the show, is skippydoogles.supercast.com. It's a really easy interface, like two clicks, and you'll get uh, premium episodes before anyone else, typically on Sundays. And uh, you help support the show. It makes the show better. Thanks, guys.